Chapter 6 It was right before the sun hit the dome of prisms in Ailitis, the last breaths of grey before this moon face's hue was spread over the glass. But it was different down here. It wasn't as important for the light to spread evenly. This was where everything was already lost, where you had yourself to blame if you ended up. Lon looked out over the brimstone boondock, the gutter of Eilithis, as the sun hit the prisms and orange light patchily spread among the alleys. Houses were stacked on top of each other, gangways built among them, creating a precariously suspended mockery of the crystal labyrinths of the higher city. Derry's nest up here in the attic provided a rare vantage point that made one see both the boondock and the high city and the gradient from pure orange to muddled grey that everyone up there pretended didn't exist. She liked it here. The most suited for survival prevailed. There were no hierarchies of tradition, no old memories giving power, no accumulated clout behind centuries of magic. The gloom provided another kind of revelation than the enforced purity of the prisms. And... As an added bonus now, she knew that the Diane was probably also back in Ailitis, furious over Lon's escape, one sycophant short. But the Diane would never dream of coming here, or even sending anyone associated with her near this place. With the back doors Lon knew of, she had been able to all but stroll into the boondock. In a way, she was safer here than anywhere else in Runa. That said... She was sure that Diane's ribs had at least fifty magical ways of finding someone they were looking for given enough time. A sound came from the other side of the room. A sound of different fabrics moving around, of skin on skin. Then a long, loud yawn, ending in a few smacks. The floorboards creaked in a strange, wet way under Derry's feet as she made her way across the room. Eventually, the bloodkith stood next to her guest, peering out into the bright orange morning. Lon wondered if it was general neglect in the city or active magic from Derry that stopped the orange prism light from being anywhere in her home at all. Derry had put the dressing gown over herself that was so stained it was difficult to tell what the actual colour of it was. It might at one point have been exquisite dark blue, silk with velvet lining. Her warm brown skin seemed dry, and the blonde hair on her head hung in lank, oily, waist-length strands. But her green eyes shone in the light they reflected, alert and sharp. So, this job, Lon said. Oh, imagine us going on an adventure again, Derry interrupted with a happy sigh. Not in my wildest dreams. And my dreams are quite wild, let me tell you. I believe that. Lon said with a deep chuckle. She was still surprised at how low her voice dropped sometimes. It made her warm inside. I've been hired to track a certain Ori down, and to bring them to my employer, alive. Which made me think it would be good to have someone of your skills along. And why did they ask someone like you to begin with? Derry said, folding all her forearms at the same time. Ugh. Lon said, grinning, her pointed teeth slipping out between her lips like daggers. I was in their neighborhood. You said it was good, Derry whined. 
So far, all I'm hearing is the most boring job we've had. Remember what happened last time we were given something boring? Lon growled, unable to stop it. Yes, vividly. The good part is the pay. And I am not letting you fuck this one up because you are bored, Derry. I did not fuck the other one up. I simply made it more interesting. Yes, drowning an entire village is certainly interesting, Lon muttered. Derry threw all her hands out. There wasn't a body of water within acres. It was impressive. And we didn't get paid. Derry groaned loudly, rolling her eyes. You never focus on what's important. But you are in luck this time. She feebly kicked a mouldy lump on the floor that might at some point have been a book. No one is interested in my services around here anymore. Not even a little mundane, mind-numbingly trite healing. I've stolen food almost the entire year. Maybe it's the forearms and weird angles everywhere, Lon said, nodding towards Derry's body. To Lon, the forearms had quickly been filed away as simply being the way Derry looked now. She was fairly used to the way Derry invented new joints all across her limbs on some sort of rotating schedule. Come to think of it, last time Lon had seen Derry, she was in the middle of dragging a tail out of her own spine. Hey, Derry snapped. I like my ankles. Lon held up her hands, yielding. Just a suggestion as to why the Ori around here give you a wide berth. In reality, Lon could think of a million things besides the ones she had mentioned for that. And who's your employer? Will they pay in anything I can actually use? Derry said. Yes. I informed them about my situation, that I needed a companion, and that said companion needed to be paid according to what is currently valued in Islitis. They provided this for the moment. Lon reached for a battered backpack on the ground, and after digging around for a while, found the pouch she was looking for, tossing it to Derry. Two of her hands tried to catch it at once, but not in the same way, and the pouch ended up crashing against the dirty large window. Derry tutted at her hands. You need to work on coordination, she muttered to her arms and bent down to get the pouch with a third hand. Opening it, her eyes widened. She took out a small, finely carved wooden grey strider. Well, well she whispered. They do know. She put the delicate little thing back in the pouch. Are you not going to tell me who hired us? Lon shrugged. Missed Mouse. Derry let out a guttural short noise. Since when do they not barge into any place they want and snatch up what they need? I didn't ask. I just know where we need to go first. I suggest Amanda as nightfalls. Hate going through the desert when the sun is out. Would like to minimize that as much as possible. And Lon hesitated. She never knew how much she needed to instruct Derry on how to move around outside this place. You are obviously going to need to look less like that for you to be useful. Derry let out a very long sigh. Fine. Fine. She muttered. And you will be done in time for us to leave tonight. Please. I will meet you by the west gate at sundown. I would rather not like to stay and watch. Yes, I know, puppy. As I said, I am well aware you never were one for art. 
There he waved for Lon to go, already standing by a staggering array of saws, serrated knives, drills, and other instruments one would have to use a lot of imagination not to assume being tools of torture. Lon slinked out into the greyish-orange of the morning. In Derry's attic, the sound of jagged edges against the bone soon sounded, cutting through wet, muffled breathing through a dirty cloth. The floorboards tried their best to soak up even more blood, but failed, and it pulled across it, slowly seeping between, into the empty dwellings below, sustenance for the forgotten corners of the boondock. Well done, Lon gruffed as Derry moved up to her. It was disorienting to look back inside the gates where everything was monochrome orange from having looked out over the vast bluish-white of the Kajiza. How anyone could stand to live in the apices was absolutely beyond Lon. Derry took a small bow. She had only two arms now and was dressed in a simple and clean get-up in pale red linen under a grey-hooded wadmole cloak. She had cut part of her pale blonde hair into bangs and the rest of it to end at shoulder length. Lon knew the practical reason for the bangs. Derry had a hex brand on her forehead that was impossible to remove in the way she changed every other part of her body. She had also smoothed out the unconventional joints on her arms and legs. For all intents and purposes, she looked quite ordinary. I don't really get why I have to go through all this and you still look as if someone dragged you through a swamp. Of blood, she said, eyeing Lon, unimpressed. I can't clean up without looking as if I'm from Bloodmore, Lon said, turning towards the Mender stables outside Alitis's west gate. There is a perfectly logical explanation for that, you know, Terry said with a giggle. Yes, exactly. We both have things we don't want to announce about ourselves, Lon muttered. The only thing that freaks people out more than your pointy angles is a put-together Bloodmorian. You could try and clean up differently, you know, Derry said, increasingly uncomfortable with the amount of sand seeping into her shoes. You can just comb hair. You don't have to shave it off. Lon snorted. I have tried. It always ends with me going back to what I know. I can't help it. Ah, yes, I'd almost forgotten. Stubborn and conservative, Derry grinned. Well, someone needs to counteract you, Lon said, stopping, finally having found a place where Menda bound for Lomoxo departed from. The stables in Ilitis seemed to go on forever to her. And someone needs to stop you from becoming a violent stone, Lon scoffed. Derry sat down at the designated crystal bench by the sign Lon stopped at. So far... There was no sign of Amanda there. Speaking of blood more, Derry continued with a small smirk. Weren't you supposed to go back there? How did you end up in a jail in Yellow Midril? Bit of a distance? I can't imagine they'd send you off to Midril if you did something naughty in Bloodmore. I hear they like to handle internal dissent in particular down there. Lon smiled a little, despite herself. She had enough political contacts in Bloodmore to never get even close to the situation Derry was referring to. She would have gotten off with a fine, at most, formalities. Then she remembered why she had left, and her frown deepened again. There's something going on in Bloodmore. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I didn't like it. 
I didn't like Bloodmore to begin with. No, you may have mentioned that before. Derry interrupted, still smiling, rolling her eyes. Yes, well, I wanted to get out before it got worse. And, well, this... She motioned at her own body. It started happening after I left. Derry raised her eyebrows. And here I thought it was deliberate enhancement. Fashion. A sense of identity. Shame on me for expecting something like that from you. Indeed. Lon said, grinning widely, noticing that Derry was staring at her teeth as she did so. I'm not complaining. At least not now that I am out. Admittedly, my reaction to these changes were probably to blame for the indiscretion that led to my incarceration. Derry's eyes narrowed in a dramatically suspicious peering. So... You killed a bunch of people because you lost your temper, is that it? I can't understand you when you speak like that. Your blood more gets too loud. Prefer the one-syllable growls. Love that they come much more often now. She smiled softly, underlining her approval with a small stroke on Lon's arm. Bloodmore asked the Apuses for help with whatever is going on there. They refused. I don't know why. I try to enter another apex further south from here. Some dingy little hole in bright red. They caught the mark on one on the pommels on a dagger I carried, suggested I move on. I asked if it had anything to do with their cowardly refusal to help us. Things escalated, Lon said. She could tell the bloodkith wasn't paying even a little bit of attention anymore. Oh! Derry gasped, clapping her hands together. She was looking behind Lon. Here's our disgusting writhing desert carriage now, Poppy. I'd almost forgotten how they look, Lydikai said softly, quietly. Before the two of them, in the valley beneath, was the first true dealwood forest they had come upon. The small copses they had ridden past and through up until now had been majestic in their own right, but this was something else. Black trunks rose up several ori's height, carrying great wide crowns of bronze yellow leaves, so dense nothing really grew on the ground. Therefore the terrain underneath was murkily ochre from the combination of dead leaves and the golden glow seeping through the foliage. Here and there, black briars stuck through the meshwork on the ground, looking like skeletal limbs reaching for the sky. From their relative vantage point, anywhere their eyes could see ahead was a vast sea of billowing amber. How have I not asked you if you've been here before? Crow asked with genuine surprise. I've used mind magic to stop you from interfering in my business, Lydikai said flatly. Crow froze, giving the tall Ori a wide-eyed look. Lydikai laughed and shook his head, admittedly a little amazed at Crow suddenly buying into one of his attempts at joking. <laughs> Don't worry. As you probably know, mind magic is frowned upon, to put it mildly, in institutes, he said, trying to ignore how stressful it was to have been misunderstood. His hands were warm around his keger's bridle. <laughs> Crow breathed, still visibly uncomfortable. I haven't been here specifically, however... But in Demiri, yes, for a while. You lived here? Yes? Lady Kai thought Crow sounded inappropriately surprised at the prospect now. Well, fuck me. Crow muttered, their face a mix of amusement and incredulity. 
With her, your or Yes, with Taryn, the auger we're going to meet, who can hopefully help you. This was the point when Lydikai realised exactly how tense he had been for the last day, and he really wished he had found out in a different way. Every sentence sounded like a threat. I'm really loving that we're going all this way to work with the bloody hopefully. Crow almost sung, vitriol very noticeable to their Kager half-sleeping at the end of the reins they were holding. I'm sorry, did I somehow force you to come along? Is this offer of help inconvenient to you? Lydikai spoke quieter now, enunciating every syllable as sharply as he could. The realisation that he was not being polite did not stop him from continuing on that route, apparently. Without another sound, scared what might come out now, Lydikai started to move down the dew-wet hill they had dismounted on. The Kega Lydikai held jumped into action jerkily, having almost fallen asleep where it stood next to him. Its six cloven hoofs made soft noises alongside Lydikai's feet in the pale grass. He focused on that sound, the constant rhythmic hissing of blades against the increasingly damp fabric of his robe. Cold dew quickly seeped through the thin fabric of his shoes, numbing his toes. It was a good distraction. Suddenly, it at least seemed sudden to Lydikai, they were in the middle of the dell, in front of the low wooden pole fence that ran around the little village of Brunetti. He heard Crow and their Kega slowly move up behind him. The Kega which had carried the Ori without incident, and Lydikai even thought he had spotted a muted contentment during their ride in Crow. He turned around with a sigh. I am sorry, he said, not meeting Crow's eye and wishing he could. Halfway there. Crow remained silent, causing Lydikai to look at them after all. Crow, however, seemed to be silent from nothing but astonishment, judging by their stare and crooked smile. Me too, they said eventually, smile still there. Lady Kai cleared his throat, turning towards the open village gate. This conversation would have to be deemed over now. Brunetti seemed half asleep, not in a lazy way, but rather in a comfortable way. Everyone that passed Lydikai and Crow seemed to have a direction, but they also stopped every tenth hand to have a conversation. The whole thing stressed Lydikai out to the point where he felt like running towards the sign that pointed to where the Kega stable was. It was at the end of a little gravel path, more a wooden roof on support than a stable. Outside it sat a very still figure with a wide-brimmed, sad-looking straw hat tipped over their face. Blonde straight hair hung down underneath the hat, cascading over their shoulders and crossed arms. They seemed to be sleeping. On their feet, crossed in front of them, were thick muddy boots in the same state as the hat. Lydikai carefully tapped the sole of the boots. The figure jumped violently at the touch, a jump that caused the Ori's hat to fall off their face. The air was perfectly still, so the hat only rolled brimwise for a few hands and then came to a stop. The Ori seemed to have some trouble localising himself in the land of the awake, eyes darting around him, eventually landing on Lidikai and Crow and their two Kega. His face and ears were covered in metal rings and rods, and they glimmered sharply in the sunlight. With a yawn, he stood up, held up a hand towards Lidikai to show that he had to wait, and went after his hat. With it firmly placed on his head again, he sauntered back to the two guests. I shouldn't complain about the weather, but... Mm, very bright... He said, nodding up towards the sun. They from Itadian? He continued, this time nodding towards the two Kega. Lydikai looked back at the mounds, catching Crow lovingly scratching theirs behind a long drooping ear. 
As they saw Lidikai looking, they quickly withdrew their hand. Lidikai smirked. They are, he said to the Ori in the stable. Though I am unsure if my companion wants to part from theirs. Shut up, I obviously got the one Kega exception that confirms the rule, Crow muttered, demonstratively holding out the reins to the hostler. He took Lidikai's Kega as well, and led two months towards some empty box stalls, removing the thick pads off their backs and their halters. Lady Kai and Crow just stood, watching him go about his business for a while. There was something so incredibly everyday about it, in a way Lady Kai had never really experienced. It was nothing like his own everyday duties, that was for sure. The second-hand comfort was still welcome, though. After a while, it started to feel awkward, even though the hostler himself seemed to pay the two Ori outside the stable no mind at all. Pardon, Lady Kai started, moving a little closer to the box. We thought we'd spend the night, but... How are connections for travelling further north tomorrow, do you know? Or do you know who to talk to for that information? The hostler didn't reply, just slowly finished what he was doing, patted the keg loudly on its neck and closed the box. Lydica was ready to turn away and hurry off, convinced he had managed to behave in a terribly offensive manner somehow, when the hostler walked over to him and Crow and waved the two of them along. Crow seemed to have been deep in some internal reverie, but snapped out of it as Lidikai started moving, following behind. As they came out of the road leading through the entire little settlement, the hostler stopped, pointing towards the direction Lidikai and Crow had come from. See the, um, that pole? Lidikai saw what he was pointing towards, a tall pole with a sad-looking blue flag hanging silently atop it. A wagon passes every day at dawn, delivers things, sometimes people, continues towards the city's north, but... That's the only one in the day, so don't miss it. Rasajiga, Lidika said, nodding. And is that the inn? He pointed towards a house that stood out in that it was the only two-story building in the village. It was next to what might be some sort of guard tower, though judging by the height and the state of the crumbling stone walls, it mostly served as a support for an impressive deep green ivy. It is, the blonde Ori said. At the nod Lidika gave him, he began to turn back to his stable. Then... He froze, and turned towards the two visitors again. Oh, and stay inside tonight. His face had instantly taken on a much more concerned look. There might be mistmares around. Crow snorted loudly next to Lidikai. Mares? That's far from the vines, and now it's in the middle of the year. Lidikai was shocked the hostler didn't take any visible offence at Crow's tone. They sounded as if they thought he had hit his head on something very hard. The hostler simply shrugged at them. Rumours, they say, yeah. But I heard those rumours from someone myself before she died from her wounds, raving about the mares keeping her alive, to warn, to scare. He continued seemingly mostly to himself. Stupid tactic to me, but... It can't hurt to be careful, Lady Kai said, stopping Crow from protesting again. Thank you for the warning. The hostler nodded, the smile on his face again, but more muted now. He turned and went back to the stable. You believe him? Crow said when he was out of hearing range. Him? Yes, Lady Kai said, starting to walk towards the inn. Though anything might be the reason for the one he had found to give such a testimony, of course. Lies to cover up something she did not want discovered, hallucinating from intake of something intoxicating, or just fear even, trauma. The possibilities are numerous. Or there could be mass around. Lidikai grunted, amused. <laughs> there could be mares around. Ah, oh, that would suck. 
He laughed this time. <laughs> Indeed. The hounds of chaos were two. Whatever they lacked in efficacy, they made up for with enthusiasm. One a more overt agent of chaos than the other. Of their pride, they remained unaware, unaccustomed to consider it, unused to its consequences. The hounds of chaos were two, their prey helpless, their talons sharp, their song a howl. By the scales of order, lock your doors tight. There had only been one room in a state to be instantly rented out at the inn in Renetti. That room, however, was more of a flat for a whole family than a room. There were three beds, each one in its own corner, and an entire three-piece sofa set in front of a large fireplace with a spit and everything. Lady Kai was sitting in a soft armchair now, and Crow was reclining in a two-person sofa on the other side of a low, rickety-looking table with a broken mosaic on its surface. They had ordered tea, and the large kettle was waiting to be done brewing, standing in the middle of the table, spreading a faint herbal smell. You've lived here, huh? Crow said, voice lazy from having near slept on the sofa for quite a while. The sun was setting outside. Lydikai didn't know what he had been doing, but he noticed that a few new knots had appeared in his hair. Where else in Runa have you been? That covers it, Lydikai replied, deciding the tea would have to be ready by now, and poured it for himself. And for how long did you live in this questionable part of Runa's lands? Crow waved limply towards the sunset-coloured sky outside the window. I came here when I was about seventeen. Moved away when I was, well, around twenty-two. Not an insignificant amount of time at that age, Crow said, sounding as if they quoted from a source unknown to Lydikai. Even for you long-lived apex types, right? They were staring at the teapot that Lydikai had put down. Eventually, they sat up with a huff and poured some for themselves. I suppose. They were silent for a while, but Lydikai felt Crow's fluorescent eyes on him. You clearly don't want to talk about it, Crow said, but it sounded more like a question than a statement. Ugh, Lydikai sighed. It feels like a different life, and now I'm... He waved his hand around a little in the air, trying to find ways to describe the feeling. Walking back into it again. The closer I get, the more I'm wondering what I'm even remembering correctly. You two not on good terms? An old, verdigris-stained ring Lydica had forgotten he always wore on his right index finger clanged loudly against the glazed mug between his hands. The sound made his startled reaction impossible to hide from Crow. It was a long time ago. Old wounds that are healed now. Crow looked at Lydikai. They didn't look convinced at all. Lydikai cleared his throat and took another sip of tea. How old are you? They asked. It was a common question for people outside institutes. The long lifespan that living in them ensured was looked on with both envy and confusion in the rest of Runa. In equal measure, Lydikai guessed. Forty-nine, last man in face. Lydikai answered too quickly for there to be any doubt that he kept my new track. So a spry youngster by apex standards, right? That's not really how it works, no. 
But if you had stayed, you could have just kept on going, right? Theoretically. That is absolutely bizarre, Crow said, an edge to it that Lydikai wasn't entirely used to. It seemed Crow, like most people, wasn't quite comfortable with the idea. They pulled at the gift of a red silk shirt they were wearing, adjusting their position in the sofa. And it's true, that thing with the... with the body. Crow motioned towards Lydikai's thin frame. Lydikai felt his jaw tense. The oblation, yes, it is, yes. That is the price paid. You just get, like, really weak. Something like that, Didikai muttered, feeling the headache-inducing wrinkle between his eyebrows pound all the way to his temples. It had taken him a long time to adjust to his body's rapid withering away in Egelin. To be honest, he had never really completely adjusted to it. The instructions, the warnings, had been many and intensive, and he had assumed they had made him prepared. They had not. Will that go away now that you're out of there, then? You'll start aging like the rest of us? Body not doing that thing? Crow was leaning back in the sofa again, looking at the complete other end of an emotional spectrum compared to Lijikai. A logical conclusion? Backed up by many accounts, yes. He felt a little nauseous. He had thought about it, but he hadn't thought about it. Then he felt a lot more nauseous. He stood up, putting the teacup down, paying no mind to that his sudden movement had made half of its contents splash out over his robe. I need a little air, he said with an attempt at a smile. Crow's look was even more indecipherable than usual over the edge of the mug. It was as if Lijikai had never thought actively about regret, and now it felt as if everything was just a big ball of it. Vague new regrets, leaving Egelin, dragging Crow along on this uncertain endeavour, about 90% of everything that slipped out of his mouth, and, of course, the old, constant, obtuse regrets that usually kept to the background, a drone pipe to his life. Always there. He let out a small, discontented hiss. Self-pity was one of the stronger magnetisms in him. It didn't matter that he knew it was unproductive, that it was petty, that he shouldn't. He should turn back, or at least turn away. Trying to near any hypothesis as to how everything would go with Taryn, even to prepare himself for possible disaster scenarios, paralyzed him. Every time he tried to think a rational thought, Unless his constant drone of regret had started to make an actual sound, something was definitely making a strange noise far away in the forest. Lejikai stared into the dark mass of black trunks. Not a single stream of light from blue Kensaro and red Manarim made it down through the treetops. It was a dense darkness covering the land surrounding the village and up the hills around the dell. At first... It sounded like rain, but the sky proved that theory wrong. It was as cloudless as the day had been, and the night air was crisp and clear because of it. The noise undulated, sometimes sounding close enough to be visible, sometimes as if it was just a whisper, a chittering, 
a deep smattering, a mass of whispers. Lydica couldn't tell if it was all those things or none of them. Stark, naked fear had him in a chokehold until the sound faded away. He had never heard anything like it, and his legs were trembling as he stumbled back inside the inn. The squat old Ori behind the counter looked at him behind unimaginably bushy brown eyebrows, just staring, before shaking his head softly and going back to the dishes he was up to. If that had all been in his mind, Lady Kai really needed to sleep properly for at least one night.